0: Last time on the Harrison Podcast, the nation was in peril. The worst fears of anti-federalist patriots was about to be realized. The government was about to, quote, be essentially and radically changed. And there was only one man who stood between America and destruction. That man is the Hero of the Tens, Old Tippecanoe, the Child of the Revolution, William Henry Harrison. My apologies for the dramatic introduction, but I couldn't resist. I'm your host, Jerry Landry, and this is the Harrison Podcast. As the language that we left off on was so dramatic last time, I wanted to play it up a bit for the intro, but it reflects that political grandstanding in overly dramatic language is not a new concept in American politics. What is the threat to the republic, according to Harrison? It is none other than, quote, the never-failing tendency of political power to increase itself. By making the president the sole distributor of all the patronage of the government, the framers of the Constitution do not appear to have anticipated at how short a period it would become a formidable instrument to control the free operations of the state governments. In layman's terms, the patronage system, as it was then constituted, was the danger to the republic. As we discussed in an earlier podcast, the spoils system had been used to more political effect by the Jackson administration than in any other administration prior. You scratch my back, I'll appoint so-and-so to this position. Indeed, state political bosses who had previously practiced such systems on a smaller scale were moving up to replicating the same nationwide by getting their favorite candidates into power. Control of New York or Pennsylvania or Virginia was no longer enough. People at the state level saw the bigger gains to be had in federal positions where there are no standards to how much, or little, one really had to do, and where they had just seen Samuel Swartwall run away scot-free with over a million dollars of ill-gained funds rightfully belonging to the U.S. government. State officials understanding this reality were in some cases willing to do anything to get there. However... Harrison goes on to say that, quote, it is not by the extent of its patronage alone that the executive department has become dangerous, but by the use which it appears may be made of appointing power to bring under its control the whole revenues of the country. Jackson had ordered the federal deposits removed, and after going through a couple of secretaries, he finally had the federal deposits removed. What was to stop him at that point? At holding the federal funds for ransom. There was no FBI, no CIA, no federal law enforcement system that we have in the modern era. There were just physical bags of specie that the administration had carried from the Bank of the United States to other banks, and that just as easily could have been carried to someone's house or to a cave in the Appalachians. Harrison goes on, quote, the constitution has declared it to be the duty of the president to see that the laws are executed and it makes him the commander-in-chief of the armies and navy of the united states if the opinion of the most approved writers upon that species of mixed government which in modern europe is termed monarchy in contradiction to despotism is correct there was wanting no other addition to the powers of our chief magistrate to stamp a monarchical character on our government but the control of the federal finances. The man, and they were all men at that point, who could coerce through lucrative employment and who could abscond with the federal treasury at any moment, was also the same man who had direct control of the entire military apparatus of the nation. By bribery, thievery, our violence. The president had multiple tools at his disposal to get his way. I believe, at least I can say so on my part, that we have a tendency to think of the early republic as a time where corruption and abuse of power was minimal or non-existent due to a commitment to the ideals of the revolution, or at least, that where there were cases of nepotism and the like, that it wasn't as diabolical as some of the abuses of the Gilded Age or on up to the present scene. However, this is exactly what Harrison is saying he sees the potential for. It's real for him, and if it was real for him, how many others felt the same? After this rousing appeal, Harrison returns to Roman illusions, and there is a lengthy discussion of the treasury and how he considers it dangerous to have it housed under the executive department. He then gets to some of his proposals for correcting this problem. Though not codified, Harrison agrees to, quote, never remove a secretary of the treasury without communicating all the circumstances attending such removal to both houses of congress and to renew quote the prohibition published by mr jefferson forbidding their meaning public officers interference in elections further than giving their own votes with quote an assurance of perfect immunity in exercising this sacred privilege of voting under the dictates of their own unbiased judgments Then there's a brief section about freedom of the press and the awarding of the contracts to print public statements and documents. Harrison argues that they've been used to partisan effect and to coerce the press to make the government look good, with Harrison asserting that, quote, a decent and manly examination of the acts of the government should be not only tolerated, but encouraged. If you're wondering about that manly adjective, it struck me as odd, too, so I'm going to do some more examination to see what I can make out about it, whether this was a common use at the time. What makes an examination, quote, manly? Moving on, we get to a section about executive interference in legislative affairs. I won't go into much detail here, as some of this has already been covered before, and the rest just supports those points. The one interesting sentence of this section is where Harrison states, quote, But the delicate duty of devising schemes of revenue should be left where the Constitution has placed it, with the immediate representatives of the people. As many of you have likely learned through government shutdowns in the 1990s and 2010s, in modern American politics, the executive branch is highly involved in the budgetary planning of the government. This actually goes back to Warren G. Harding and the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921, which established the Bureau of the Budget. Harding's successor, Calvin Coolidge, worked closely with his budget director, Herbert Lord, and established a precedent of executive leadership in budget development and implementation. However, as indicated by Harrison, this was considered improper and generally seen as a violation of the separation of constitutional powers for a good time in American history. This does not mean, however, that having a policy on currency was considered out of the president's purview. As the U.S. Mint was originally established under the executive branch, it was acceptable for Harrison to explain that, quote, "...the idea of making it U.S. currency, exclusively metallic, however well-intended." appears to me to be fraught with more fatal consequences than any other scheme having no relation to the personal rights of the citizens that has ever been devised this harkens back to jackson's specie circular which was an attempt to move the nation more towards metallic currency referred to as hard money rather than paper or soft money The money debate would become more central to American politics following the Civil War, with Harrison's grandson, Benjamin Harrison, venturing into the gold standard versus silver dispute in the 1880s and 1890s. The ninth president also went on record on an issue that has still yet to be resolved to date, namely the status of the District of Columbia. Harrison noted that, quote, It is in the district only where American citizens are to be found who, under a settled policy, are deprived of many important political privileges without any aspiring hope as to the future. If not an out-and-out opponent for D.C. statehood, by this statement, it can be surmised that Harrison would at least be open and sympathetic to that camp's arguments, as he felt that, as, quote, the people of the District of Columbia were free American citizens when the Constitution was formed. No words used in that instrument could have been intended to deprive them of that character. From the status of the district, Harrison wanders into a winding discussion of state citizenship. In the initial lengthy paragraph on the subject, one begins to question whether he had a specific point in mind as he name drops Athens and the Helvetic Confederacy. However, it starts to become clearer when he says in the next paragraph that, quote, The attempt of those of one state to control the domestic institutions of another can only result in feelings of distrust and jealousy, the certain harbingers of disunion, violence, and civil war, and the ultimate destruction of our free institutions. Though not directly referenced, in a post-Missouri Compromise America, and at a time that abolitionists were beginning to enter the political arena, I believe that this can be read to be making a statement against abolitionism. This is borne up by Harrison's own words in an eighteen thirty six letter in which he asserts that neither in the character of citizens of the United States nor in that of citizens of their respective states have the people of the non-slaveholding states any right to interfere with the slave population of the other states. While not getting too deep into Harrison's views on slavery, which I think can be quickly summarized as It's complicated, and better dealt with as the focus of a future episode. Harrison's position of being anti-slavery and anti-abolitionism does not seem to have been as rare as one might imagine, and, potentially, a logical argument could be made for those two stances to be independent of one another. Disunion has been a fear of Americans from the initial time of joining together as a union, and after the turmoil around the admission of Missouri as a state, increasingly American leaders were growing ever more concerned that the issue of slavery would divide the nation. As noted by Margaret Coit, Slavery was wiping out any chance for the South to compete with the North industrially. Southern capital was too submerged in the peculiar institution to leave any surplus for untried enterprises. Indeed, certain factors such as westward migration, the growth of the textile industry in the North and in Great Britain, the development of new agricultural technologies, and the panics of 1819 and 1837, played a role in Southerners doubling down on slavery, when for a time after the establishment of the Constitution, there was open discussion of the potential end of the slave system. To those who saw the slave system as quicksand for the people of the South, they could then be anti-slavery but also view abolitionists as agitators recklessly seeking to precipitate a complete collapse of the southern economy and potentially the national economy in turn, rather than develop more gradual and, in their view, sensible solutions to the slavery issue. Naturally, this view ignores the humanity of those people of color held in captivity and places the needs of free citizens above those of the enslaved. Turning back to the inaugural speech, Harrison then focuses squarely on the idea of domestic tranquility and asserts that, quote, it should be our constant and earnest endeavor mutually to cultivate a spirit of concord and harmony among the various parts of our Confederacy. Part of the reason for the need for concord, Harrison contests, is, quote, to encourage them some states to the extent of our constitutional authority to apply their best means and cheerfully to make all necessary sacrifices and submit to all necessary burdens to fulfill their fiscal engagements and maintain their credit for the character and credit of the several states form a part of the character and credit of the whole country part of the issue with the panic of eighteen thirty seven was that while the national debt had been paid off by andrew jackson the states had incurred debt to fund projects that the federal government refused to allocate funds for, either because of the efforts at the national level to eliminate the debt or because the project was deemed unconstitutional by those with strict interpretations of the Constitution. Harrison continued on a positive note state that, quote, the resources of the country are abundant. The enterprise and activity of our people proverbial, and we may well hope that wise legislation and prudent administration by the respective governments, each acting within its own sphere, will restore former prosperity. Though he felt that other states and the federal government should work with a state suffering from fiscal woes to urge responsible management of it to restore stability, he made sure to clarify that, quote, The spirit of liberty is the sovereign balm for every injury which our institutions may receive and that the people themselves are key to ensuring that liberty stays alive. He warns that, quote, The danger to all well-established free governments arises from the unwillingness of the people to believe in its existence are from the influence of designing men diverting their attention from the quarter whence it approaches to a source from which it can never come. As a cautionary tale, Harrison lists the examples of Julius Caesar, Oliver Cromwell, and Simon Bolivar as usurpers acting in the name of the people who ultimately seize power for themselves. Fear not, though, Americans, for the new president says, quote, there is no instance on record of an extensive and well-established republic being changed into an aristocracy. So long as we maintain our happy republic, all will be well. To do so, we must understand the difference between the spirit of liberty and the spirit of party. What is the difference, you ask? Harrison has the answer. The true spirit of liberty, although devoted, persevering, bold, and uncompromising in principle, that secured is mild and tolerant, and scrupulous as to the means it employs, whilst the spirit of party, assuming to be that of liberty, is harsh, vindictive, and intolerant and totally reckless as to the character of the allies which it brings to the aid of its cause. Thus, the spirit of liberty is well-principled and tolerant, while the spirit of party is intolerant and reckless. Got it? Good, because Harrison has got to move on. In a speech filled with discussion of domestic affairs, Harrison knew that he had to address foreign policy, so he did, very, very briefly. He addressed, quote, my fellow citizens, to, quote, assure them that it is my intention to use every means in my power to preserve the friendly intercourse which now so happily subsists with every foreign nation and that although of course not well informed as to the state of pending negotiations with any of them i see in the personal characters of the sovereigns as well as in the mutual interests of our own and of the governments with which our relations are most intimate a pleasing guarantee that the harmony so important to the interests of their subjects as well as of our citizens will not be interrupted by the advancement of any claim or pretension upon their part to which our honor would not permit us to yield Whew. That is a great number of words, just to say that he won't know until getting to work what the Van Buren administration was negotiating with other nations, but he wasn't going to rock the boat. His Indian policy would be the same as that pursued during the administrations of Jefferson and Madison, which suggests a possible change of tactics from the Jackson and Van Buren administrations, but it's not explicitly stated as such. There we go. That covers everything about foreign affairs and diplomacy, right? No questions? Would you people all put your hands down? I'm trying to see if anyone has any questions about the administration's foreign policy. Oh, well, if you're going to keep your hands up, I'm going to move on. Harrison returned to more comfortable territory and changed the subject to the role of party politics. Quote, If parties in a republic are necessary to secure a degree of vigilance, sufficient to keep the public functionaries within the bounds of law and duty, at that point, their usefulness ends. Beyond that, they become destructive of public virtue, the parent of a spirit antagonist to that of liberty, and eventually its inevitable conqueror. He then goes on with descriptions of former republics that lost their spirit, their way, and ultimately their liberty, and once again reminds the gathered crowd that, quote, The entire remedy is with the people. Something, however, may be effected by the means which they, meaning the people, have placed in my hands. It is union that we want, not of a party for the sake of that party, but a union of the whole country for the sake of the whole country, for the defense of its interest and its honor against foreign aggression, for the defense of those principles for which our ancestors so gloriously contended. He's painting a bright picture for the nation's future with himself at its head. He then reminds folks that he has, quote, a profound reverence for the Christian religion and a thorough conviction that sound morals, religious liberty, and a just sense of religious responsibility before closing out his speech. As you've been able to see, there was a great deal to the speech. Even with summarizing lengthy paragraphs in a sentence, we still had to go to two episodes on the subject before we could get through the entire inaugural speech with anything approaching justice. Though long-winded at times, speech does illustrate some of the traits that are the foundation of Harrison's public support, namely, wisdom through experience, a commitment to ideals of liberty and public service, and a firm faith in the American people. Here was a guy who, though presenting stark contrast with the policies and practices of the previous administration, was willing to compromise and follow their lead on certain issues. He would act in the best interests of the citizens of the United States and intended to prove it to folks in the next four years. This brings us to the end of the first planned group of episodes. I'd originally started the podcast with the intention of carrying it through this series of episodes, then see if I wanted to keep going. Due to the response that I've received thus far, and my continued interest, I'm happy to report that I do plan to keep on going. The next episode will begin a 10-part series that will take us through Harrison's life from start to finish. Until then, please check out the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com, as well as on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, all one word. If you have any questions, comments, show ideas, or just want to say hi, please feel free to reach out to me at Harrison Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm thinking of experimenting with different show formats and possibly incorporating guests into the program, so I'd appreciate any suggestions on what's worked thus far, what didn't, and thoughts on improvements. As this is my first foray into podcasting, I feel that I've already learned a great deal, but imagine there is still plenty more to learn and look forward to learning together with you. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this first round of episodes enlightening and entertaining and that you'll join me when the next batch of episodes comes out. Take care.